Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. While it may not appear to be the case on your end of this podcast, I've actually been spending a lot of time in the salon this week. To begin with, I recorded the interview with Charlie Grobe that you're about to hear. And on Tuesday, I drove up to Long Beach to spend the day with Gary Fisher, looking at his pictures and poking through his files and recording some of his stories. And if you don't know who Gary is, you can learn something about him and his psychedelic research in next week's podcast. But today I'm going to play the recording of a conversation I had with Dr. Charles Grobe, M.D., or Charlie as he prefers to be called. Charlie is a professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at the UCLA School of Medicine and director of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. He conducted the first government-approved study of MDMA and, along with Dennis McKenna and Jace Calloway, conducted an international biomedical psychiatric research project in the Brazilian Amazon, which focused on ayahuasca use. He is currently conducting an investigation of the effects of psilocybin with end-stage cancer patients. And uh, Charlie's published numerous articles in medical and psychiatric journals and collected volumes. And he's also the editor of Hallucinogens, a reader. And along with Roger Walsh, he edited Higher Wisdom, Eminent Elders Explore the Continuing Impact of Psychedelics. Charlie is uh, also a founding board member of the Hefter Research Institute. And for full disclosure, I probably should add that Charlie is also a very close friend of Mary C's and mine. So uh, why don't you just sit back, relax, and join Charlie and me here in the Psychedelic Salon. What I thought we'd do is... uh, we talk about your MDMA study and the psilocybin study and uh, just briefly touch on the ayahuasca thing because that one will bring in uh, Dennis and Jace and get the three of you talking. Okay, sure, yeah. sure. So, uh, well, let me just kind of start off and say that, uh, you know, that uh, as far as I know, aren't you about the only uh, at least U.S. researcher who's actually uh, done human studies with three different uh, psychoactive compounds uh, on, on human uh Test uh, is am I correct that there? Um, possibly, I'm, I'm, I, you know, there's there's so few uh, in, investigators in this area that that, uh, that 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 might be possible. I have to I have to give it some thought. Yeah, I, I haven't uh, well, I haven't come across anybody else. And uh, you know, you you uh, as as I recall the story, you you went into medicine and went through the whole rigors of medical school because you wanted to do this research. Am I am I right about that? No, that's correct. I, you know, back in the uh, early 70s, I, I had a, an epiphany that uh, what I wanted to do was to uh, conduct psychiatric research with psychedelic drugs. And uh, here we are some, you know, 35-plus years later, and it's, it, 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 it turns out that I've been able to do that. But as as uh, the people that know you know, uh, it hasn't been easy. <laughs> it's taken a long time to get these studies going, right? Oh, it took a very long time. You know, back in the back in the early seventies, I very naively thought that uh, by the time I left medical school, but at the end of the seventies, 
I'd be able to join somebody's uh, ongoing uh, psychedelic research project. But by then, of course, everything had been shut down, and uh, and nothing opened up for a number of years, not until the 90s when Rick Strausman uh, was the first one to demonstrate that it was still possible to get approval to conduct a Phase One uh, investigation, in his case with DMT, uh, about a year after that, I was able to get permission to work with NDMA and normal volunteers. Now, what what did it take to you? You say you got permission to do it, but it wasn't quite that simple. Uh, what what all was involved? Uh, I, I assume even that you started before uh, about the same time Rick was starting to uh, get his approvals. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Back back around nineteen ninety ninety one, I I wrote up. Um, with the help of some colleagues, I, I wrote up my first uh, protocol, and then it was a matter of uh, submitting to uh, to FDA, and that process took uh, took some time. It went back and forth. I was, in fact, invited uh, to uh, Washington, actually to Rockville, Maryland, to testify at a, at a hearing uh, conducted at the FDA e- examining the uh, the merits of doing human research with um, MDMA. They invited a number of um, you know, experts from around the country, and uh, and I was there, and uh, I think it had a, a fairly good outcome. At that point, I had put in uh, a protocol asking to work with a patient population, and their response was uh, that, 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 that we were a little ahead of the game by wanting to work with uh, patients, that we would first have to... Uh, uh, conduct a study with normal volunteers and establish safety parameters there. And so I was happy to rewrite a protocol for normal volunteers. Initially, I had questioned whether they would even allow that because of the uh, of, of the so-called neurotoxicity issue, which uh, at least back at that time had questioned what you know whether the drug would be safe for anyone to take at any time under any circumstance. Uh, but uh, I thought the FDA uh, uh, hearing went well, and I thought the uh, people in charge were quite fair and judicious, and uh, and they did uh, encourage us to take it back to the drawing board and and bring back to them a normal volunteer protocol, which we did, and then that was approved in November '92. So, so you actually began your uh, your submission of your protocol uh, back during the Reagan administration, is that right? No, no, it would no? be the uh, Bush one. Oh, Bush one. Okay, right, Bush sure. one. Still not necessarily a drug-friendly uh, <laughs> regime. No. no, not at all. And actually, I, 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 I'll, I'll, uh, I'll add that our that we I had been told over the phone in uh, the, in the early autumn of '92 that we had permission. I asked for something in writing, which I needed for our our hospital committees. But I did not get anything in writing until the day after Election Day in 92. Huh. So I don't know if that was coincidence or uh, someone up there in the bureaucracy was waiting to see how, uh, how, the, how, the, how the new political realities would uh, would play out. But uh, that's uh, that's what happened. That's an interesting coincidence, anyhow. And uh, why don't uh, I, I, first of all, let me clarify that we're talking about MDMA, which on the street a lot of people call ecstasy, but most of what they find on the street today under ecstasy is probably not MDMA. Is uh, well, at least a lot of it. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. Correct. Um, you, you know, the whole. You know, my interest was always in studying the. Um, the uh, potential therapeutic uh, uh, effects of MDMA. I've always had concerns about use and abuse of the recreational drug ecstasy. Uh, 
Now, early on in the history of this drug, uh, uh, ecstasy was almost always MDMA, but over the years, there's been more and more drug substitution to the point where now there's, uh, with, with ecstasy, I think there's less reliability in regards to it being the drug you think it is than any other drug that I'm aware of. You know, more, you know, many surveys show that more than 50% of what's sold out there on the streets is ecstasy. It, it turns out to be a drug other than MDMA. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. It's quite sad. That's one of the problems of the prohibition, of course, is uh, you don't know what you're getting out on the street. Uh, so we'll get back into the clinical area here. That, as you uh, mentioned, the uh, psychological uh, properties of these materials are quite interesting. And and uh, before it hit the streets, uh, as most people now know, uh, Leo Zeff trained a bunch of people uh, like George Greer and uh, Riqua Talbert uh, were two of the people he trained. Did you ever get get to meet uh, the secret chief and uh, talk well, to him? No, I've heard I've heard many stories about him, but uh, when he was active, I was I was actually living on the East Coast, and uh, by the time I got out here and had uh, had developed some interest in that area, Leo Zeff had, uh, had, had essentially exited the, uh, the stage. But I never got to meet him. I guess we ought to go through the process of getting approval for doing this uh, uh, so that some of our, our listeners can uh, kind of go through the pain and agony. But when you write a protocol, you just don't sit there by yourself and make up, uh, hey, I want to do this. You consult with colleagues. And then how does, sure. the proce- how does the process work before it even gets to, say, the FDA? Well, at first you want to come up with 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 a good effort. I mean, I, I'll start off the process and then I'll send my draft to uh, colleagues who have some expertise in this area and some background with uh, research protocols and the regulatory process. And uh, there's a lot of back and forth, and I pool ideas from a variety of sources, and then I uh, I essentially complete the the best protocol I can come up with with all the input I get. After which I I, I do uh, submit uh, to the uh, to to the federal regulatory uh, agency, starting with the FDA. Now, at that point, do you have uh, money lined up for a study, or is this your no. still no no? I've all <laughs> every study I've ever run has been run on a shoestring and. Uh, <laughs> But essentially, I've always had the the, the, the approach that one saw in the, the old movie, uh, uh, I think it was called Field of Dreams, mm. you know, where uh, uh, Kevin Costner is uh, building a uh, baseball field for the uh, great old stars to come and play at, and uh, and he says, uh, if I build it, they will come. So I've always <laughs> felt if I can get a protocol uh, written that's... Uh, that competently addresses the issues at hand, and uh, if I can get it approved by all the regulatory agencies and hospital committees, that the funding will will arrive, and it always has. Although I will add, not very much, and we've uh, we tend to run very lean budgets, especially compared to other kinds of medical and psychiatric drug research budgets. Yeah, that's that's always a problem. Is that you're almost like uh, a U.S. politician uh, out there begging for money uh, more time than actually doing your work. Sometimes it seems like. Well, <laughs> but it's uh, been challenging. Although I will say that we've had uh, you know a few people who have been invaluable in uh, in uh, in helping us get off the ground and keep our momentum going. And um, so we have had uh, you know a few people who've made very important contributions. And and uh, now the when you have a, a protocol into the FDA, they they look at it and they come back and say, well, we don't like this or that or the other. Right, thing. right. So there was a lot of back and forth with actually every 
uh, regulatory agency and every committee we went through. And I, I thought their um, their input was often, you know, right on the mark, and uh, they gave us some helpful uh, helpful recommendations. So we modified our protocol further going through the regulatory process. Well, let's let's go ahead and just take this uh, process in a generic uh, sense because okay. uh, the most recent one uh, probably is the psilocybin study, and, right. and uh, that would be the most current uh, information as right. to how it happens. Right, also most currently in my memory. <laughs> this is from some time ago. So with uh, psilocybin, we went through, uh, you know, went through the same kind of process, and here we had, um, we were asking for permission to work with advanced stage cancer patients, and we put in uh, for permission to work with a fairly high dose, a 0.3 milligram per kilogram, and the FDA got back to us and said they thought, uh, given this was the uh, first time in many years this kind of patient population was going to be studied with a uh, psychedelic drug that they thought the first study should uh, approach it more cautiously with a, a, a modest dose. So after some discussion and consideration, I uh, you know, I accepted that this was actually good advice. So here we are establishing our um, our treatment process and uh, establishing feasibility that we could actually get this work done and also looking to establish safety parameters. So starting with a, a, a more modest dose, I, I felt did make sense. So we uh, we rewrote the protocol and one thing we changed was uh, the dose, which was 0.2 milligram per kilogram. And I've actually felt that, although I will, you know, in the not too distant future, resubmit as we're finishing our pilot study, and I'll resubmit to do a, uh, a larger-scale study, I, I will uh, apply for a higher dose. I think it was a good idea to have uh, done the pilot investigation with the more modest dose. We've had some good results, even with that. Now, once you get FDA approval, it's not over there, though. You still no, have... not at all. No, who... no, we have to, we have to go through the DEA, and that involves a visit from a local DEA agent who really um, is primarily concerned with the, the, the uh, security of the, uh, the drug. So he wants to see where it is stored and how uh, secure that, uh, that arrangement is. And uh, you have to have a special... Uh, safe that meets specifications to store Schedule 1 drugs, and it has to be within a locked room, and that locked room has to be within another locked room, and, uh, you know, so they've got fairly, you know, um, uh, you know, clear specifications as to what needs to be uh, accomplished before they allow you uh, permission to store the drug, but we got through that, you know, all right as well. And then um, after the uh, FDA and after the DEA, we went through the uh, – California has its own in-state uh, regulatory uh, uh, committee. It's kind of like an in-state FDA or in-state review for Schedule One research, and that's the California Research Advisory Panel. And, and they also made some comments, and they had some good – Good input as well, and we did some further modifications. And then uh, we had to go through uh, two hospital committees at Harbor UCLA. One was uh, the uh, the IRB or the uh, Human Subjects uh, Committee, and the other is the uh, the uh, the Research Committee that oversees all research on the uh, on the research unit, which is where we conduct our study. Now, if you if one of those organizations uh, makes some changes, do you have to go all the way back to the FDA and start over again? Well, you you, you submit your final version. Ah. Although mm-hmm. no changes were made in any of the areas that each of the prior committees had um, been emphatic that we ought to make some modifications. And by the end, all all the regulatory groups seem 
seem more you know comfortable with the uh, the final version. You know, some of the uh, the people who I know are grad students and medical students that are thinking about this as a, an area of work for their uh, life's work uh, probably ought to keep in mind the fact that the the glory part where you're actually working with a, a participant who's uh, on using the subject the substance uh, those hours are pretty minimal compared to all of the bureaucratic hours, well, right? It takes a long time before you get to that point of actually treating somebody. So if you have some uh, ambition to work in this area, you have to develop a certain uh, you know, character qualities like having a lot of patience and uh, persistence. Two, two things that would eliminate me from doing psychedelic research, I can assure you, that you, you've exhibited a great deal of that uh, over the years. I know it took, uh, for your well, solace... Still a Simon study, it took quite a few years to get that approved, right? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the first version was actually our first protocol we sent to FDA back in 91, I think, and it was, uh, it was actually written for MDMA, that we initially thought of using MDMA for a patient population with advanced uh, cancer. But then because of the, uh, of the turmoil in our culture with the uh, ecstasy uh, fad and the questions over... Um, central nervous system damage we uh, and really just how sensationalized it had become we felt it would be very hard to get permission in that uh, political environment so we rewrote the protocol in the late 90s for uh, psilocybin and I'll say that I uh, that decision was made in concert with my colleagues at the uh, Hefter Research Institute who uh, strongly uh, urged me to, 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 to resubmit uh, uh, a, a cancer treatment protocol, but substituting psilocybin for MDMA. Just uh, as the, since there has really not been a, a, a study that I know about MDMA and cancer, but uh, you are working right now with cancer patients and psilocybin. Uh, just, I know there's no way you can have a professional opinion, but your gut reaction right now about the two different substances for somebody that's an well, end-stage cancer, which do you think sure. is preferable? Sure. No, I, I've actually given this some thought, and I've uh, come to the determination that uh, psilocybin, I think, believe, would be a, a safer, possibly more efficacious uh, drug to use. Um, you know, one reason being that uh, uh, with MDMA, what we observed and what others have observed is, even with normal volunteers, you can get some very, very robust uh, blood pressure changes. You can get some very significant increases in blood pressure after you administer MDMA. And my uh, my view is that with uh, people uh, who have advanced cancer, they very well may have um, multiple organ system failures and they may have a very vulnerable uh, cardiovascular system and a rapid precipitous rise in blood pressure may uh, lead to um, catastrophic consequences. We felt psilocybin with much more modest effects on cardiovascular function would be, uh, would be a safer compound to use in that regard. And, and your phase one study is about safety, so you are measuring right. blood pressure, those kind of things, right? Right, absolutely. Now the other, the other, uh, yes, uh, we, we do throughout the uh, throughout the uh, the experimental uh, treatment session. But uh, another consideration is that uh, you know many people after an MDMA session report uh, in subsequent days a uh, tremendous uh, drain of energy, and uh, given the uh, precarious status of people with advanced cancer. Uh, we felt that could be problematic as well. That, in a sense, we're not only looking for, you know, a uh, helping to facilitate a very positive experience during the, you know, four to six hours of the acute 
drug effects, but we're also um, um, hoping here, or even speculating, that this treatment model will facilitate significant improvements in um, psychiatric status in the uh, subsequent days, weeks, and even months. And if you're you're wrestling with tremendous energy drain, it may detract from the uh, to what degree you can come away from that experience with an overall uh, uh, improvement in your psychological status. We felt psilocybin would, uh, you know, that generally after a psilocybin session, people do not feel that energy drain they do with uh, MDMA, likely from the amphetamine uh, quality of the uh, MDMA, that people feel very, very good, very grounded, and uh, and do not feel uh, physically and uh, psychologically exhausted as you uh, not infrequently see with MDMA. So there were a few reasons why we thought psilocybin would be a uh, preferable compound to use in, in, with this kind of patient population. Right. Also, perhaps that it uh, it provides, a, we thought, perhaps a more in-depth experience, a more uh, an experience that might allow one to explore more the the existential dimensions of their current life situation. Yeah, I, I uh, can confess to in in my past uh, days having uh, experimented with both of these substances, and uh, I found that the psilocybin gave me a, a cosmic experience, where the MDMA gave me uh, more of a grounded uh, empathy uh, contact right. with other human experience. Right. Well, yeah, and what I'm saying doesn't necessarily—I'm not saying that MDMA does not have its uh, place within, uh, you know, uh, you know, with various, uh, you know. Um, therapeutic uh, approaches with particular patient groups. I'm just saying that people with very, very severe end-stage medical illness may not be the uh, optimal population for a drug like MDMA. On the other hand, uh, for instance, a a group of patients with chronic post-traumatic stress disorder, such as what Michael Bethoffer is working with in South Carolina, that might be a uh, an ideal population. Presumably, these people are physically healthy. Uh, the MDMA might induce a very profound uh, state, uh, a pathogenic state, and also a state where they feel safe enough to uh, explore with the therapist the prior trauma and to start to work through much of the uh, the issues and the. Uh, in a sense, the psychic armoring that that grew up in response to that trauma. So MDMA might turn out to be a very valuable compound to use with a chronic uh, PTSD patient group. But with uh, a medically ill group, I, uh, I over the years I started to question that and felt that psilocybin would be uh, significantly safer. In in your uh, your research that you did in the early '90s uh, with humans and MDMA, which we knew uh-huh. was pure MDMA, what kind of did you have any negative or adverse refe- uh, results? Uh, was everybody well, the same well, or what? Well, we, we treated. Um, so we, we were. <laughs> I'll tell you a couple of stories. Well, one is that um, we had two people who had very significant uh, hypertensive reactions. Um, uh, one was a our eldest our oldest uh, subject who was I believe around 60. He had normal baseline blood pressure, and within an hour, his systolic blood pressure had gone up to 200, which uh, certainly concerned myself and uh, my research nurse. But it, uh, we 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 actually uh, treated it, and it went it went rapidly down. And then we had another man, a 27-year-old, and here he was coming in for his third treatment session. And with that study. 
people came in for three separate uh, experimental treatment sessions spaced several weeks apart. Uh, two were different dosages of MDMA. One was a, uh, a placebo. It was his third session, so we knew that uh, uh, he had received an MDMA on at least one other occasion. It was all double-blinded as well, so we didn't actually know what they were getting on each occasion. But on the third occasion, you know, he's had it at least once before. Well, after an hour, his blood pressure went from a systolic of 120 up to uh, 220. When I looked at the record, he had had uh, normal, pretty normal blood pressure through his other two sessions. So I asked him, well, something's got to be different today than was the case uh, on your previous visits. And he said, yeah, there was something different. He had not... He had decided not to tell me because he didn't think it was important, but now he was going to reveal it. And that was that in order to get to the hospital early in the morning, as we were requiring, uh, he had stayed at a friend's house who lives close to the hospital. His friend had a cat. Uh, the subject turned out to be allergic to the cat and uh, started to develop some uh, uh, wheezing. <clears throat> so um, uh had some breathing difficulty. So... It, his friend said, well, you know, I, I have some asthma medicine perhaps you could try that could help your wheezing. So he took some of his friend's asthma medicine, and it turns out that the interaction between the asthma medicine and the MDMA caused a fairly serious uh, blood pressure elevation. So, we again, we rapidly treated it. We brought it back down to normal. But it also points out a relative risk in regards to recreational use of MDMA is that uh, a lot of people are oblivious to the fact that uh, different drugs can interact with one another and people who may have medical conditions on medication who then take ecstasy, you know, which is some often, though not always, MDMA, that there may be a drug-drug interaction which can cause uh, injurious effect. So uh, it's kind of a, a cautionary note in regards to uh, the use of uh, both the uh, recreational and the controlled sexual therapeutic use of MDMA. You know, that's a really good point, and one I forget to make sometimes. I know uh, uh, there's so many people at uh, at raves and parties and gatherings that are doing uh, polydrugging, which, right. uh, you know, it's one thing if, if it's something that's, uh, you know, tried and true and thousands have done it and you know what the uh, results are, but... What uh, a lot of people forget is uh, just these common over-the-counter medicines are going to interact. Uh... Oh, that's right. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You, you take, uh, you know, you, you take a cold medicine with some uh, pseudoephedrine in it, and you 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 can uh, you can cause some cardiovascular symptoms, including um, a hypertensive episode. You know, there there are other uh, there are other examples in the literature. For instance. Uh, some years ago, a report from San Francisco General Hospital of a man who was being treated uh, for HIV disorder with a protease inhibitor. Uh, yeah, he came in uh, looking as if he had taken an overdose of, uh, of ecstasy or MDMA, and he, he alleged to have taken only one pill. And after some investigation, uh, the, uh, the treating physicians realized that his, the protease inhibitor, which he was taking, had impaired the capacity of this man's liver to metabolize the MDMA. So he was not clearing the MDMA and was left with a, uh, a rather alarming uh, situation with, uh, you know, high blood pressure and uh, palpitations and the like. He, he eventually uh, was able to clear the drug and, uh, and was uh, left the hospital healthy, but it, was a, uh, it caused some alarm among the treating personnel for a while. And of course, that adds to the uh, the 
records in the literature saying, oh, here's another emergency room uh, sure. victim of MDMA, which, sure. uh, which of course it was, but it's uh, sure. it's ex- uh, complicated uh, because of other substances. So uh, that's right. Did you in that first study? Did you have anybody that that uh, just absolutely had a horrible trip or a bad? Oh, trip? Oh, good. I'm glad you asked that. Okay, so we we were um, one of our subjects uh, comes in for his first session. And he becomes acutely uh, anxious, uh, quite agitated, and told me that uh, he was uh, he was very upset that he had volunteered for the study. That he felt taking a drug like he called it ecstasy uh, allowed him to pick up all of the, as he put it, negative vibes in the hospital, and it was distressing him. So you know, I told him that. Uh, According to what he had agreed to, he needed to stay in the hospital for the rest of the day and through the night, but in the morning he could leave and he did not have to come back for the following two sessions. But in a sense, he could elect after he left the hospital to drop out of the study, which he did. Now, following his dropping out of the study, we decided to break the blind to see how much MDMA we had given him that had caused this fairly serious anxiety reaction. So we broke the blind, and uh, to our surprise, it turned out that he had received a placebo. <laughs> so uh, never, never, the, the take-home message there is never underestimate the uh, the power of the placebo response. So essentially, he had simply psyched himself out. Now, uh, that being said, uh, we had 18 subjects who received uh, MDMA on each on two occasions. None had an adverse psychological experience. They all had positive uh, psychological experiences and uh, you know, to- tolerated uh, you know, being in the hospital without a problem. So, so I guess my my Irish comment would be beware the placebos. <laughs> right, right, that's right. Now, now you had a, a a range of people there. Uh, you said somebody was near sixty and and right. somebody twenty seven. So, was there uh, any difference in the physiological reactions in the age group, or is it pretty much? Uh, well, we, well, we you know, I'd say we we I, I think the lesson from the sixty year old was that as we get older. Uh, we tend to have uh, we we tend to have somewhat more vulnerability in our cardiovascular responses. So um, I, you know, I'd have to say most of our subjects were on the young side, but our older ones, no one had a hypertensive reaction like the 60-year-old man. But we had a couple of others who had, you know, some elevations of blood pressure. But it was the 60-year-old who seemed to have uh, it just came into that. Uh, Session with uh, significant uh, vulnerability to experience just what happened. Well, one of the reasons I ask that is I've, I've, you know, off and on I read uh, about the brain development and that it's uh, still going on while we're in our, our teenage years and all. And then, of course, there's all these uh, rumors about uh, Suicide Tuesdays coming down off of MDMA. And right. uh, I was just wondering about the the relative. Uh, Merits of, of you know what do you tell your kids other than just say no because you know there are some risks some dangers it's hard to uh, hard to just uh, protect a child and yet you don't want to just say no because you know some of these things can be also very positive uh, materials right. as well 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 that, that's a very I mean that's a very tricky issue um, I mean you're you're right just sweeping prohibitions often are not effective I think the uh, 
often the most helpful thing you could do is simply to be honest and to provide young people with uh, the information that we uh, we know to date. Uh, for instance, uh, caution them that uh, when they purchase ecstasy, that there's uh, a, a great possibility that it may be a drug other than ecstasy. And that's to describe to them what some of these other drugs might be. And some might be fairly toxic and uh uh, dangerous to uh, users. I think we should also talk to them about the danger of uh, mixing medi- medications or mi- mixing rec- these these kinds of compounds with other recreational drugs, and, as well as uh, you know medically prescribed medications. Uh, I think we also need to talk with them about the setting where it's taken. That in fact it turns out that the most common menu for taking a drug like MDMA is a big uh, uh, dance scene. And we need to let them, uh, help them learn that uh, that might be dangerous in and of itself. There have been a number of cases of malignant hyperthermia where people uh, start to uh, uh, heat up so their body temperature can go up to 105, 106 degrees, uh, which can cause a... uh, a very, very serious uh, blood condition called disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, which uh, where um, the blood vessels start to clot off. It could lead to liver failure. It could lead to kidney failure. It could lead to seizures, and, it, and there have been deaths reported. Now, these are far more likely to occur in a setting where individuals are exercising, uh, such as dancing at a rave, where it may be uh, crowded and uh, stuffy, uh, uh, you know, just crowded, poor uh, ventilation. Uh, the, the ambient temperature may be too warm. Um, also, there was an example in England of, uh, of uh, two young men dying on consecutive weekends at the same dance club when authorities went to investigate they realized that the establishment was in the practice of turning off the tap water in the bathroom, uh, thereby uh, forcing people to buy water over the counter at the bar for the price of a beer. And here were two young men who died of uh, malignant hyperthermia and um, uh, who, who seemingly were placed at greater risk because of the deprivation of available uh, fluids. Yeah, you know, it's it's really a tough uh, tough call because I, I do know how much fun it can be to uh, take that and dance all night. But the the young people that I've uh, convinced to give it a try and uh, you know back off the dance floor, get together in a small group, and uh, not that I'm advocating this because you legally can't, but uh, I, I've been uh, thanked many times by people who say, "Gosh, I never knew it could be so interesting with a group of four or five people and what we learned about each other." And so. Uh, you know that that uh, all of these medicines are are uh, I, I, you know it's like anything else. Uh, too much of a good thing can kill. Right. You. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. The ancient Greeks used to like to say that you know the def- difference between a uh, a medicine and a poison is the dose. And you might also say that in a case like this, uh, you know, uh, an- another difference might be the uh, the-, the frequency. Mm. within which one has the experience and the amount of the drug use. I think one concern I have with MDMA is that a lot of people will report that uh, uh, over time the positive effects attenuate or diminish, so they start to increase the dose. They start to mix it with other drugs, uh, including methamphetamine, 
And uh, in those kinds of situations, I think there's some implicit uh, dangers. Right. Most most definitely there are. Well, wouldn't you know it, but uh, right about here, my good old Dell computer crashed. And uh, so I rebooted and called Charlie back, and we talked for about another 10 minutes, and uh, <laughs> then it crashed again. And uh, that 10 minutes is lost forever, I'm afraid. But uh, I tried one more time, and, and Charlie was very, very gracious and patient. But we finally did get about another 10 minutes of our conversation recorded, and I'll play that right now. Okay, well, before we just got so rudely interrupted by the computer crash, uh, uh, sure. <laughs> we, were, we were talking about uh, the work Humphrey Osmond did in Saskatchewan with uh, alcoholics, and sure. you were talking about that a little bit. Right, no, Osmond had a fascinating project. He, uh, he treated uh, with uh, one dose of either uh, high-dose LSD or, or mescaline. He, he treated very hardcore chronic uh, uh, alcoholics who had been refractory or non-responsive to, to other treatments. Uh, and he found that an appreciable proportion were able to maintain sobriety for some time. When he went back to look at what the strongest predictor was for those patients with a positive outcome, he found that that these individuals during their one session had what was described as a uh, religious or psycho-spiritual or, or mystical experience, a mystico-mimetic experience, as it were. So we found that those individuals who had this kind of spiritual epiphany were the, were, were the ones who were able to sustain sobriety for the longest period of time. And this, you know, this... Uh, kind of harkens back to what William James, the, uh, the founder of American psychology more than 100 years ago, once said about alcoholism, which he called dipsomania. He said the best treatment for dipsomania is religiomania. And that's uh, also consistent with our observations in Brazil when we did our ayahuasca study with the Unidade Vegetal. I was going to ask about that. Wasn't wasn't that also involved with a lot of alcoholics in that uh, sure. study? Well, a number of the people I uh, I interviewed for for the study and just also spoke informally with outside of the study were people who had had fairly serious uh, problems with alcoholism and drug addiction uh, and antisocial behavior uh, prior to their entry into the, the UDV, where they had uh, access to ayahuasca ceremonies uh, twice monthly. And, um, you know, uh, these were people who, after their entry into the ayahuasca religion, were able to abandon their uh, their destructive use of alcohol and other drugs altogether. So it uh, seems to me there are some very interesting implications here for Osmond's old work with alcoholics as well as some of our more recent observations uh, with the ayahuasca church as well as... Uh, as other others who have observed a similar process with the Native American Peyote Church. Yeah, you know, it'd be interesting to compare some of Osmond's results uh, with, like, the Peyote Church and the uh, UDV, because uh, they seem to have a, a monthly reinforcement, whereas the Osmond group uh, didn't sound like he uh, did follow through with them. That's correct. And I think, the, uh, I think looking at these... Uh, Religions, these actually these you know organized legal religions that are sanctioned to administer uh, plant psychedelics to their uh, 
to their practitioners that um, the, 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 the value of, in a sense, these booster experiences every couple of weeks or every month uh, seem to be quite significant. So I think, honestly, that the ideal model putting all this together uh, to treat alcoholics would be an initial treatment uh, uh, program followed by uh, sequential fo- opportunity for follow-up booster sessions. I think that that, that would be far more likely to reinforce the um, the positive effects and uh, cr- create a a greater likelihood of extending sobriety. Well, right now I don't see any any real treatments for alcoholism other than you know go to a program for every day or well, something like that. Well, uh, honestly, if you look, if you look with, 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 with you know just very openly and honestly at the uh, situation of how we treat alcoholics, I think you'd have to acknowledge that we really haven't advanced much over the last fifty or sixty years. I mean, fifty years ago, if an alcoholic came into your office asking for help, probably. Um, You'd uh, you'd suggest that they, uh, they 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 find a 12-step group, and if they're lucky and if it was a good fit, they could get some help. But if it wasn't a good fit, they might be out of luck. This would be the same same kind of uh, treatment approach you might recommend 50 years ago that you might recommend today with an alcoholic. So I think, uh, especially with a condition like this, where there is extraordinary damage done to the individual, to families, to the whole social fabric and where we have very, very limited effective treatments, where the field of medicine has evolved so minimally over the last half century, I think there's tremendous need and even opportunity here to develop new novel treatment programs involving optimal structures to utilize psychedelics. Of course, that being said, it would have to be done in an entirely legal sanction context. And, and you know that I wonder if the times are maybe starting to the pendulum swinging because now you just gave a presentation at the American Psychiatric Association right. talking about psychedelics, which you probably couldn't have done ten years ago. Well, I, actually, I did. <laughs> <laughs> you did, huh? <laughs> I, I've talked at the APA going back to the early nineties. There's always been some interest, but uh, so it, you've it's, you've been the thorn in their side that long? <laughs> well, I don't know, thorn in their side. I mean, it's 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 it's. Uh, I, I I think I've been involved with um, seven or eight uh, applications to the APA to to do presentations about half of which have been accepted. So uh, half the time we're able to give the talk we'd like to, half the time we get shot down. And uh, generally speaking, we get a you know a fairly a modest but good fairly good turnout. Uh, this year we maybe had about uh, 60 people. Pre- previous years probably had uh, upwards to 100. We're generally given a uh, an out of the way location and a, a suboptimal. Time slot, but generally we uh, we pull in enough people to feel that it's uh, it's been uh, worthwhile to have made the effort to do it. Are you finding better acceptance among your your colleagues now? Well, you know, it, 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 it's hard to say. I, you know, I it's um, when I give this talk, uh, there are generally one of two responses. Either people come up afterwards and say, "This is really great. It's about time." that uh, people started to study these compounds again. That's one kind of response. And the other kind of response was, this isn't very interesting. It has nothing to do with what uh, 
what psychiatry is all about these days, so I'm not going to waste my time here. So, but we, don't, we, we generally don't get uh, the kind of hostile response that I think I had some concern might be the case uh, when I started this years ago. Well, let's hope that the pendulum is swinging. And uh, I really, you know, we, we're probably going to have to cut this off, but I really appreciate your time right now and uh, look forward to talking to you and, and Dennis and Jace about your ayahuasca research because that's something that's uh, near and dear to the hearts of uh, a lot of people in the world these days. Well, thanks a lot for your time today, Charlie, and uh, I look forward to having you join us uh, here in the Psychedelic Salon again. And uh, do you have any parting words you'd like to say to the uh, all of your fans out there in cyberspace? <laughs> <laughs> be careful and um uh don't don't be in such a rush it's uh there are fascinating possibilities out there and uh sometimes uh makes a lot of sense to be uh patient and wait for um, opportunities that allow for uh optimal safety and uh optimal uh outcome to what uh what you're trying to succeed well, I definitely second that. So, uh, thank you very much, Charlie. Okay. After listening to my conversation with Charlie just now, I was struck by what he said about compromising our cardiovascular systems as we get older, and how the 60-year-old in his MDMA safety study experienced some elevated blood pressure. What struck me was how my own relationship to MDMA has changed over the years. I won't recount here my early experiences with it during its heyday in Dallas as ecstasy, but uh, what I want to mention is how my desire to use it began fading away several years ago to the point uh, where whenever I think about it now, my body says, are you really sure we should do this? And uh, now the answer always seems to be no. What I'm getting at here is that by listening to my body, so to speak, I may have actually avoided an episode of elevated blood pressure, which, now that I'm in my 65th year, is something I'd like to avoid. So, for what it's worth, my advice in these matters is to always follow your instincts and not what your friends or your ego may be saying. You know, deep down, you always know what's uh, right for you at any given moment. And I found that when I trust those feelings over what my rational mind might be saying, I seldom go wrong. I was also taken with Charlie's comments about the scarcity of funding for psychedelic research. Fortunately, there have been a few individuals who are in a position to make significant donations to keep this research going. Quite frankly, uh, without the very small number of big donors who fund this research, it probably would have come to a complete halt long ago. But uh, for those of us who don't have any disposable income to help with this research, there are other ways we can help. My way is to uh, do it through these podcasts and try to spread the word about the importance of these sacred medicines as best I can. One of the things you can do if you feel so motivated is to tell a friend about the Psychedelic Salon and encourage them to take a look at the list of programs, uh, of which, by the way, this is my 96th. And uh, maybe they can see if there's a talk or two that would be of interest to them. And uh, also, though you are small in number, I want to give a special shout-out to the 28 wonderful people who have made donations to keep the Psychedelic Salon going during these past two years. This coming Sunday, June 10th, is the second anniversary of this series of podcasts, and during that time, over tens of thousands of people have downloaded close to a million copies of these podcasts, not to mention the people who hear these programs through one of the mirror sites. 
So you wonderful 28 souls out there who sent contributions that range from $2 to $150 during the past two years, well, each and every one of you can rest assured that you have had a much greater impact uh, in keeping these podcasts coming than you might really believe. Your generosity moves me deeply and your encouragement is what keeps me going. And to all of you supporters of psychedelic research, on behalf of all of us, I want to thank you for keeping the psychedelic campfire burning. You know, unlike uh, other areas of scientific interest, there uh, aren't any big government grants going to the women and men who are called to investigate what may well be the most important class of chemical compounds we humans will ever encounter. It really makes you wonder what's so threatening about these substances to the keepers of the status quo that they go to such great lengths to keep them away from us. You know, just this morning I was listening to KMO's interview with Jacob Sullum on the Sea Realm podcast, and they were talking about how the U.S. Supreme Court has now approved two psychoactive sacraments for use in religious ceremonies, but that both of these syncretic religions involved aspects of Christianity. And that reminded me of a conversation I had with John Hanna a couple podcasts back where he told us about the law prohibiting any reference to mind-altering properties that may be associated with energy drinks. You know, it's becoming more clear to me every day that what the screwheads in Washington are afraid of is losing their male-dominated Calvinist Christian grip on the reins of power. And maybe they're right to see that if these psychedelic medicines were used in a conscious way by a culture such as the one Aldous Huxley described in his brilliant novel Island, a little of his moksha medicine might go a long way to nudging us humans up to a slightly higher level of awareness, particularly about what a mess some of our fellow humans are making of things on our dear little spaceship Earth. But hey, the news isn't all bad. You just have to dig a little deeper to find the good news. But there actually are a lot of reasons to hold on to our dreams of a global, sustainable, cooperative human culture. And uh, if you're lucky enough to get to Burning Man this year, we'll have more to say about that when we meet again in the big tent on the playa. Before I go, I want to mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at www.psychedelicsalon.org. And if you have any questions, comments, complaints, or suggestions about these podcasts, well, just send them to lorenzo at matrixmasters.com. Thanks again to Chateau Hayuk for our theme song here in the salon. And thanks again for being here. You know, it was nice to be with you again. And since I'm not quite ready to leave this nice vibe right now, I'm going to do something a little different. And as soon as I sign off, I'm going to play a song from my new favorite rock group, Vavom, V-A-V-O-H-M, who, uh, by the way, happen to be fellow saloners. You know, about uh, six months or so ago, I guess, uh, they very kindly sent me their new album, and it really captured me. So a while back, I recommended them to Queer Ninja for one of his music programs, but right about then is when the ninja began his sabbatical. So if you want to hear a little of the kind of music I like, I guess I'm going to have to play it myself. And uh, now they've given me permission to use any of the songs on their new CD. In 
by the way, on the program notes for this podcast that you can find at psychedelicsalon.org, I'll put a link to the VabOM site where you can find out a lot more about them. And although I asked if they had a preference for a song that I could play at the end of a podcast, they've uh, pretty much left that up to me. So I'm not sure if they'll consider the song I'm about to play representative, but it's uh, one I really enjoy. And So I'm going to sign off now and uh, let you see if you can figure out what Vavom's song titled Drifting Away might be about. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. And now, here is Vavom drifting away.